0: Normally, it's Pastor Seth. If you don't know who he is, he's uh, better looking than I am, and that's the easiest way to find him. But, but uh, we have an awesome pastor. We are blessed with just an awesome, awesome pastor, awesome children's pastor. Yes. And so it's just an honor to be able to, to get up here and just be able to bring God's word this morning. I, it's something I don't take light lightly, so thank you. Um, if, if you don't know, I was in the military from 2001 to 2005. Um, the students are rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> students are rolling their eyes because I tell about three uh, Army stories a week. So they're, they're used to all of it. But but I was in from 2001 2005, and, and I, I actually signed up just a few months before 9 11. So I entered in peacetime, and then stuff got real real quick. But I was I was airborne infantry. I, I decided if I was going to join the military, I was going to do something unique to the military. Something that if I did outside of the military, I'd be arrested pretty quickly. And so I I joined the airborne infantry. And I mean, it was a blast. We got to do all the cool stuff, kick down doors, and and just feel awesome. But it's a lot of training, and it's a lot of, that's about all we can do. Unless we are over-deployed, we all we can do is train. And so it's just training, training, training. And I remember in late 2002, early 2003, that, that's when the, the UN investigators were going into Iraq, and, and Saddam was just being shady, not really really cooperating. And, and we could just see the writing was on the wall, that we we were going to get to, somebody was going to get to go to Iraq, and we were hoping it was us. And so we'd be out training all hours of the night and we'd come back and just flip on the news and, and if i'm being honest it'd be like boy I hope saddam did something dumb today because we just wanted to go over there and just kick his butt Which spoiler alert we did and so we we were just waiting and sure enough early 2003 the orders came down They said yes, the u.s. is going to go into iraq and we were one of the first units to go in and we were stoked And so we started training even harder. We just got ready in every way possible and then we were finally sent over and we were actually sent over to to saudi arabia that was kind of the staging ground and we had a pretty awesome mission being airborne infantry we were actually going to jump into baghdad Inter- international airport and seize seize uh one of the control towers uh, that, that was my platoon's job was to seize one of the control towers on baghdad international airport and that'd become kind of the base for everything to go out of but if you remember everybody was ready we, we were all set everything was prepared and then this giant sandstorm hit us. And you could see it coming from, it's just like in the movies, like you see it from literally miles away. The, the, you just see it coming. Uh, I just remember just standing there, just watching. You could see it edging closer and closer. And when it hits you, it just it hit us like a wall. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't walk out anywhere. You, couldn't, you could barely see your hand in front of your face. That's how thick the fan, sandstorm was. And we were so frustrated by that. If we just left a day earlier, we, we, we would have beat the sandstorm. We knew it was coming, and we were like, come on, let's just, let's just go. Why can't we just go earlier? Let's just move everything up a day. It's not a big deal. We want to go, and we want to we kill bad guys. So can we just go over there and do this? And the sandstorm delayed everything. And we knew that in that delay, that just gave the Iraqis more time to, to set up defenses. And sure enough, they were getting satellite imagery every, every few hours of Baghdad International Airport, because they knew that's what we were going to hit, and so they were setting up these big spikes, and all this razor wire, and anything that would make an airborne incursion pretty much impossible, and, and so as the soundstorm is dying down, we got word that we would not get to do this combat jump, which we were really bummed about. Doing a combat jump in the military is a big deal, because it's, it's really rare. I, I was in the eighty second Airborne, which is they jumped into Normandy and they've I, I think to this day they've had like six combat jumps. So to be one of those was was a big deal. We ended up not getting to do it. We had to ride in really smelly vehicles all the way from Saudi Arabia to, to Baghdad. We were so frustrated. Everybody, we just, why not now? Why can't we just leave just a little bit early? Why can't we just go now? We, we got planes, can't we fly up over the sand? Because we didn't really understand how planes worked. And we were just so frustrated that, that we just barely, we had this window, and then the window just closed and just threw everything off, threw all our plans off. And maybe you're in here this morning, and, and you're going through that. I'm sure we've all had times in our life where we've gone through and we've had those why not now moments. That, that every, everything seemed ready. You'd prepared in every way you could. Maybe you've, you've gone through the home buying process and you found that perfect home in the perfect location for the perfect price and you put in the perfect bid on it only to find out that somebody bid higher and you don't get the house. You know, why not now? Why, why do we have to wait? Why do we have to keep looking for a house? maybe there's this this promotion at work that you know you're perfect for that it's you've had your eye on this job ever since you started, and so you've worked your tail off you've been a valuable employee you you've done everything that's been asked of you and then this big job promotion opens up and it's it's everything you want it's it's better pay it's more hours at home with your family and somebody else gets the job Why not now why can't I have that job May, Maybe you're going through and and you're you're trying to have Children and you 're just going through the heartbreak, just the frustration of, of miscarriage and infertility, and just nothing seems to be working. Why not now, God? Why not now? Why can't we have a kid now? Maybe there's some illness that you're battling or somebody in your family's battling with, and you you've been just praying every hour of the day, you've been seeing every doctor you can, you've just been been doing everything natural that you can, and you 've been seek, seeking out the supernatural with everything that you are. And yet nothing seems to get better. Why not now, God? Why not now? Why Why wait? And that's what we pick up in Joshua 5. If you have your Bible this morning, just turn to Joshua 5. That's mostly where we will set up camp this morning. We've been going through the, the book of Joshua, and I love the book of Joshua because it starts off and you see how Joshua assumes this leadership role, that Moses, he's passed away, Moses being the, the greatest leader in the, in the history of Israel, and he passes away, and now Joseph takes that mantle, the, and, and God just encourages him, he tells him, be strong and courageous, you don't have to worry about anything because I've got everything already planned, everything already taken care of and then we see in in joshua 2 that the spies are sent into jericho that's the first stop that's that's the big the big boys on the street jericho is is pretty much viewed in the ancient far east as as unbeatable and so they send in a couple spies and we see the the great story of rahab and how god can just use anybody that as long as we we give our lives over to god god can turn us into something glorious and we see that in the life of rahab and in the history of israel and then, in verse chapter three it's it's this it 's this dis- defining moment in the history of Israel. They cross over the jordan river that this is them entering the promised land and they don't just cross over in some pedestrian normal way no but they go they cross over when the Jericho is or when the Jordan is just at its at its highest it's during flood season and God doesn't just have them cross over but he miraculously stops up the water so all of Israel can cross over on dry ground and in chapter 4 we see that God tells them to go and get some stones out of the dry riverbed collect up 12 12 stones and set up this monument to God's goodness to God's provision that years from now people can look back on that and remember what God accomplished when, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. And now we pick up in Joshua 5, and we just see how God just continues to come through, how God continues to, to take care of the Israelites. In Joshua 5, it starts off this way. It says, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites, until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear. And they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now from a military standpoint, this is everything you could hope for. Look at what God accomplishes just with one miracle. He he stops it. And he just solidifies in the, in the nation of Israel, he solidifies in their mind that he is their God, that he's going to take care of them. He, he solidifies in the people's mind that Joshua is the leader, that, that God is going to work through Joshua. And they can trust Joshua just, just, just because of, of their trust for God. And we see now that God uses this, this miraculous crossing to strike terror into every nation that's along the Jordan River. That, that those people that they had to worry about, the Israelites have already won the moral battle battle, that, that, that in, in warfare, this is a big deal. When I was in, in Iraq, before we went into any city, we didn't go in with the, the Humvees with the gun turrets on top, they, they went in with the Humvees with these big loudspeakers on top. And they would just project out and just say, the U.S. is coming, they're gonna tear through you like tissue paper, you best get out of the way. And, and just to break down the enemy, uh, th- their their morale, just to break them down and just get in their heads. And then once we did that, they put up less of a fight, they're more likely to surrender. And if you break their morale, the battle's already won. And we see that God does that with Israel crossing the Jordan River, that, that the the battle for morale is already won, that they, they just have the the Canaanites and everybody along the riverbank is just terrified and so from a human standpoint the time is perfect for this attack there's no better time God has displayed his power everybody's terrified they they've won the morale battle there's no better time you've got to seize the initiative you've got to seize this advantage if you are the nation of Israel if you're the army of Israel from a human standpoint there's no reason to stop because the longer that you stop, the longer you give Jericho to shore up their defenses. The longer you take to get to Jericho, they have all that much more time to store up food to, to kind of to, to get women and children out of there, to really set up their defenses and put up the best fight possible. And, and Israel at this point, they've got to have the element of surprise. Jericho had no idea they were coming because no... Army in their right mind is going to cross the Jordan River when is it is at flood stage? They they would have had to find find a different part to wait a few months for the Jordan to recede or cross it, and it would have taken days if not weeks to cross the Jordan. And now the Israelite people, millions of people, just crossed it in one day. And Jericho's got to be caught totally off guard by this. From a human standpoint, you don't stop; you keep going, right? God God's provide the way. Let's let's keep going. Let's drive through. But look at what God says in Joshua chapter 5, verse 2. It says, at that time, at that time, in light of what just happened, in light of, of all the kings being terrified, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. We've all had these moments in our life when we say, why not now? That had to have been the Israelite mindset, right? All the men, they had to have been saying, wait a minute. You want us to do what? Why not now? we we've got the initiative we we've got them by surprise we can go and it's never going to get easier why do we have to stop and be circumcised god doesn't tell them to stop and to build some more ladders some more siege weapons maybe sharpen swords and strengthen armor no god says make flint knives and circumcise the israelites again just from a historical standpoint you know what great battle was won with flint knives none of them Flint knives are not a battle of warfare. This is not something that you're going to go into war for with. God has something completely different in mind. And so as the Israelite people ask this question, why not now? As I, as I read this text and I look at it and I think, God, why did you do this now? Why not just push them through? Why? Why ask for circumcision? Why demand that the Israelites be circumcised at this moment after they've crossed the Jordan? After, because crossing the Jordan... It did a couple different things. The Jordan River would have been the only natural barrier between the Israelites and all of the Canaanites. It's the only thing that's keeping the Canaanites at at bay from the Israelites. And the Israelites, when they cross over the Jordan, and the Jordan River comes back up, now they have no way to retreat. And not only that, if you look at a map, you see that the, the area they crossed into, it was just, it's very flat, so there's no natural terrain for them to hide behind. They are sitting ducks where they are at right now. And for the Israelites, for millions of people to cross the Jordan, this was a declaration of war. There's, there's no doubt anymore that all of, all, of, all of Jericho, all of the Canaanites, they knew this is it. Israelites are coming for us. So this is a declaration of war. And rather than continuing to march on, God says, stop Make flint knives, circumcise the Israelites again. And as I read that, I think, God, why? Why do that now? Why, why not before they cross the Jordan River? Wouldn't that make more sense? Or better yet, they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. You've been leading them as a, as a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. You've been raining down their food from heaven. You've been making sure that their clothes don't wear out, that their shoes don't wear out. Why not remind them over those 40 years to stop them in the desert and say, you need to be circumcised. Why does God wait until they have entered in to this, this, this point in their life where they really can't rely on their own strength? They, they, they enter in where they are sitting ducks. But if they continue forward, seemingly they, 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 will, be, they will be more successful than if they just stop. Why would God stop them at this moment? As I read that, I thought, why? Why not now? I, I worked construction a few years back for, for quite a while, and the, the first job site I ever worked on was actually building a church out in Bluffdale. Anyone in here ever been to Bluffdale? If you know anything about Bluffdale, it's, it's pretty high up. There's not really any mountains around it, and so it's just constantly windy, constantly windy. It's, it's cold. It's the wind that just doesn't matter how many layers you had on. It just tore through you constant, constant wind. And we had this job site out in Bluffdale. I started in September and, and my first day, uh, the, my boss, he said, okay, look, we, we've got a lot to do because in the next few months we need to hurry and get everything ready because we need to have the foundation poured before winter hits, because once winter hits, it's a lot harder to pour a foundation. It takes longer for the concrete to cure. It's you have to wait for an opening in the weather, and it's just more difficult. But if you can get the foundation down before winter hits, then you can work pretty steadily through the winter. You can put up walls on on a on a cement slab pretty easily in the winter. And so we worked our tails off, we made, we made everything we needed to, we, we flattened out the land, we, we dug the trenches where the concrete would go, we put the, we, we made some wooden forms that we put in there to hold the concrete, we put rebar into it to reinforce the concrete, and we were ready. We were so confident that we, before we called the the city inspector to come in and, and give us the stamp of approval. We actually had co- the concrete guys set up, ready to go for the next day. We said, just, co- just come on over. We, we've got the inspector coming, but we know we're good. Inspector comes in, and he walks around. And, and this this wasn't a small foundation. I mean, it was big. It, it was a lot of work that we put into it. And he's walking around and just looking at everything. We're pretty confident. But as it turns out, he comes back, and he had denied denied us. He, he said, you guys can't pour the concrete yet. The, there was one side where we hadn't dug down deep enough. And when I say deep enough, I'm not talking about feet. I'm talking about inches. Turns out there was some, just some little little rule that, was, that, that Bluffdale had that isn't everywhere. But Bluffdale said, you have to dig down this far before you can pour the concrete. We were so, so frustrated. Because sure enough, the next day, foul weather hit us. And so now we're dealing with, with freezing rain, we're dealing with snow, and we've got to dig this dirt, dig this mud out of the trench. And we already had the wood forms in there, we already had the rebar in there, we couldn't even fit a full-size shovel, we had little garden trowels, and we had to go along and just dig out this mud, and it would take all day. And then the next day it would rain again, and all the mud would slide back in, and we'd have to repeat the process. We were so frustrated with that inspector. Why? Why couldn't he just sign off on it? Why couldn't he just... Overlook it's just just a couple inches. Not going to make a big deal. Why couldn't he overlook this? But the fact of the matter is, is he was actually doing us a favor, because if we had poured this foundation and everything wasn't up to code, everything wasn't just perfect, then when you pour the foundation, it'll look okay. from the outside, it'll look good. It'll look nice and flat. Everything will seemingly be there. But as you start to put weight on the foundation, as you start to put up these big metal beams, as you start to put on the heavy roof and and everything, and weight starts to be added to this foundation, there's a good chance that the foundation, even if it just slips just a little bit, it wreaks havoc on your structure. Everything gets thrown off. The foundation can crack And your whole building becomes useless. You can't even set foot in it until you get it fixed. the Israelites, they're camped out, ready to invade Jericho. And on the outside, everything seems ready. It seems like everything has fallen into place and there's nothing holding them back. But God looks at their foundation and he says, you are lacking. You are not ready for the weight that is about to be put on this. And so we need to shore up your foundation We need to strengthen this up. It looks good on the outside, but underneath the surface, your foundation needs a little bit of work. So Joshua, chapter 5, verse 3, says, So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at gibeath Heroloth. Now this is why he did it. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. Verse 5. All the people that came out had died had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey to Egypt had not. So you have an entire generation. If you know your, your Israelite history, it's, it's more than likely it's every male except for two. Joshua and Caleb may have been circumcised. Everybody else wasn't. And God softs them and says, Nope, we gotta fix this. We got to strengthen up your foundation because you guys you, you're not looking to me fully. And it's even more interesting that they, they haven't been, they'd literally been following God in the wilderness, right? Like they have the pillar of cloud. They literally followed God everywhere they went. And what's interesting is just, just a couple chapters earlier, before they crossed the Jordan River, God tells the people of Israel in Joshua 3, 5, he says, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. And not one single person was circumcised circumcision it was was an act of consecration it was it was it was an act of setting yourself apart to to something that that was unique to the israelites that they said that that we serve this god and this is how we identify our males is with circumcision of birth birth not a single male thought to be circumcised israel had forgotten what god meant by consecration Israel, they probably went through all this thing. Maybe they, maybe they ritualistically purified themselves. They sacrificed some animals. Whatever they did, they'd forgotten what it truly meant to be consecrated. They allowed this this outside worldview to creep in that said, well, circumcision's not a big deal, is it? We don't need to be circumcised. It's, it's archaic. It's unnecessary. We don't need to do this. We're out wandering in the wilderness. We're about to go and invade the nation of, of jericho we 're about to go and fight all these canaanites we can 't have men hobbling around on the battlefield, so we don 't need to do this this isn 't a big deal. they had allowed this outside worldview to creep in, and rather than valuing what God valued, they were picking and choosing, and so God needed to strengthen up their foundation before they could go any further. I love the bible I, I love how you can read read something in the New Testament and it fits so perfectly with the Old Testament. I love how, how you can compare the Old Testament to the New Testament. And you just get this complete picture. And I love how you can read all of the Bible and it just jumps off the page how it applies to our lives today. There's nothing else that is that way. Nothing else that has remained relevant for 4,000 years. Anyone in here sti- still wear bell-bottoms? It proves my point pretty, pretty consistently, doesn't it? That nothing remains relevant, but yet the Bible... Because it's God's word, because it's timeless truth, it has remained relevant and true for so long. And I love that when you read Romans twelve two, it compares perfectly to what the nation of Israel is going through 1,500 years earlier. Romans twelve two, it says this, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We can read that and see how it so perfectly fits in 1,500 years earlier. But even more amazing, we can read that and see how it fits in 2,000 years later to our lives today. We live in an age where this is so true, where where it's so easy to conform to the pattern of the world, to fit in with the world, to look to what the world values and value that ourselves. I struggle with this time and time again where, where I've allowed this this worldly view to creep in rather than trusting on God's timing, trusting on God's standard, I've just wanted what I wanted. I, I felt called to be a youth pastor from, from a very young age, from, from being a teenager, I felt called to be a youth pastor. There's no doubt in my mind God wanted to be a youth pastor. And going into my 30s, I still wasn't a full time youth pastor. I was so frustrated. It's like, God, why not? I had some pretty confrontational prayers with God where I just said, God, this is what you want for me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm, I'm studying. Why aren't I a youth pastor? It's because I needed to renew my mind. There were areas in my life where God knew I wasn't ready, where if he tried to place too much weight on that foundation, it would crack and crumble, that my foundation was not firmly enough on God, that I was still clinging to other things and I, looking back on it now, I thank God that I was not a youth pastor in my 30s, in my early 30s. I'm 35 now, so I am now. But, but God had to take me through some stuff. God had to prepare me. God had to strengthen that foundation so that when more weight was put on it, yes, there, 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 there is, there's such great things to come. That I, I feel so fulfilled being a youth pastor, but not because of who I am, but because of who God is. I needed to recognize That what valued more in my life was not what I wanted, but what God wanted. It's easy for us. We, We live in an age where it's easier and easier to conform to the pattern of the world. It's becoming less and less popular to be a follower of Christ. Hundreds of years ago, the default was to be a believer in Christ. And now, it's unpopular to be a follower of Christ. You're, you're bigoted if you're a follower of Christ. You're, you're, you're not accepting. You're not a good person. The Christianity, they have these these rules and these regulations that why? Why follow them? It's archaic. It doesn't apply anymore. And so you, we see more and more churches going that way. We see more and more followers of God going that way where they're conforming to the pattern of the world rather than being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And it's becoming easier to ignore what God meant when he, when he said this is marriage. It's easier to ignore what God said When he said, this is what it means to be pure. This is what it means to be content. This is what it means to be successful. This is the value of human life. It's easier to acquiesce and give in to the world. We live in an age where it's easier to have our culture shape our beliefs rather than our beliefs shape our culture. But we were called to go out and shape culture, to take our beliefs into the world, not hold them to ourselves, but to go out to fight those battles when they need to be fought, but not by our own strength, not by our own knowledge, not by our own sense of rightness, but by God's standard, by what God has called us to be. And that's the light of the world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this begs the question, how do we renew our mind? How are we transformed? How did God transform, renew the mind of the Israelites? And how does that apply to us today? And as I was reading through Joshua 5 and just studying, I, I came across this word prescription. And when I say prescription, what do you think of? We think of the doctor, right? We, we go to the doctor and we get this prescription for, for whatever's ailing us. The doctor fills out his prescription. We go and we get it filled and, and, we, and we feel all better. But actually, the word prescription, when it first entered into the lexicon, when it first entered into to everyday use, the word prescription actually meant a recommendation or command that is authoritatively put forward. It had more to do with the law than anything else. To follow the law of God meant to follow the prescriptions of God. And this is where the Israelites find themselves, is they need to, how, how do they transform their mind? How do they renew their mind? They look at the prescriptions of God. That's why God gave them the law. God gave them the law, not so that they could follow all of it, but so they could see just how much they needed God, how inadequate they were to follow that law, and to seek out God through that, to follow the prescriptions, to seek out God in that way. It's, it's interesting that if you look at Joshua 1.8, this is Joshua assuming command of the Israelites, and God is building him up, up and, and equipping him to be this leader. And God tells Joshua, Joshua 1.8, eight it says, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. This is so true. You see it time and time again in Israel's history. That You, you can read through First and Second Chronicles and see the, the kings of Judah as they, as they get closer to God or fall away from God. The kings that are successful are the ones that follow God's prescriptions, God's laws. The ones that, that ultimately end in tragedy, end in doom, are the ones that fall away from it. Israel, at this moment, sitting on the plains of Gilgal, waiting to enter in and fight Jericho, Israel needed to follow God's prescriptions. They needed to transform their mind by taking off, off the, what they thought was right, what the world, what they had allowed to creep in and get renew their mind and get it back on God and what God valued and what, how God demanded worship. Israel needed to follow prescriptions, not the world's, in order to be successful. And God defines what is good, not us. God defines what is good. Think of it this way. Let's say you have a car that breaks down. It, it's just falling apart and you're not quite sure what's wrong with it. You, you need it to be fixed. And you've got one neighbor, and he's the guy who actually built your car. He, he's the one that knows that inside and out, he put every piece of your car together. And you've got another neighbor that's a wizard with duct tape, that he can fix anything with it, right? He can fix his bathtub, he can, he can fix his laptop, he can fix his marriage, just with duct tape. He can fix anything with duct tape. Are you going to go to the neighbor and get some duct tape, or are you going to go to the one who built the car, who put it together, who knows inside and out will be able to diagnose it rather than just cover it up? God defines what is good, not us. The Israelites, they needed their foundation strengthened because they are about to enter into a nation full of pagan beliefs, pagan practices, enter into nations that didn't value God's law, God's standard God's prescriptions and so before the Israelites could go any further they needed to renew their minds They needed to get their minds back on God's prescriptions. So just like Paul says in Romans 12 2 Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good Pleasing and perfect will in order for the Israelites to be successful They needed to have God at the forefront of their mind. So when faced with these issues Faced with these worldly dilemmas, they'd be able to test and approve God's perfect will. I, I think of it this way: I, I've got I've got three little girls: uh, a one-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old. Uh, Layla's the seven-year-old; she's my oldest, and, and her her day is very regimented. There, there's not a lot that's left up to her. We, she she wakes up when we wake her up. She goes to bed when we put her to bed. She eats when we make food for her. She gets dressed when, when we lay out the clothes for her. And as she gets older, we, we allow her to do more and more. But very early on at this stage in her life, we, we, have, it, we have it very highly re- regimented because we want, it, we want it to be cemented in her mind here. This is, this is what keeps you safe. This is what keeps you healthy. This is what keeps you successful so that as she grows up, she doesn't have to rely so much on us, but, but she still knows what is good and what is right. And so she can, she can grow up being molded by us. And it'd be pretty irresponsible as a parent to just sit, sit seven-year-old Layla down and be like, Layla, you're seven now, and uh, I just feel like it's time for you to get a job and find your own apartments. So we're giving you two weeks to move out, and at the end of two weeks, if you don't have a job or an apartment, we're gonna have to just put your stuff on the curb. I would not be a good parent if I did that. But when Layla is in her 40s, if she's still living at home, and I'm still cooking her meals and laying out her clothes for her, I'm not being a good parent. Amen. The Israelites, yes. Somebody has a kid still living at home. The Israelites at this moment, they needed to do some growing up. They, they wanted to step out into the promised land, into everything God had planned for them. And God stops them and they're saying, why, now, why not now? Because Israelite had a little bit of growing up to do. They needed that foundation shored up a little bit. Imagine if God had just left the Israelites to wander in the desert. These are God's chosen people. And for the last 40 years, they've been a laughing stock because they've just been wandering throughout the desert. Nobody takes them seriously. God had bigger plans in Israel did. God had such big plans for Israel, but he knew that they needed to do a little bit of growing up. They needed to fix their minds back on him in every way possible. They needed to follow every prescription that he had laid out for them. And what's awesome is we see how that transformation, that renewing of the mind leads to knowing what God's good, perfect, and pleasing will is for their lives. Because we see that God tells them to stop and be circumcised but that wasn't the only thing that they they had set by the wayside there's something else that they hadn't done for almost a whole generation for 39 years not since they were camped at the base of mount sinai had they celebrated the passover and what's amazing about it is god had to command his people to stop and be circumcised but he didn't have to command them to celebrate the passover because look at verse 10 this is after they've been circumcised verse 10 Just a few days later, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The Israelites went from this warfare mindset to this worshipful mindset. No longer did they care about what lied in front of them. They cared about what was behind them. They cared about what God had done in their lives that they, they valued, they knew God tells us to be circumcised, we'll be circumcised. God tells us to celebrate the Passover. You better believe we're going to celebrate the Passover. Israel's mind had been transformed because they'd fixed their mind on the prescriptions of God. They'd fixed their mind on what God wanted for their lives. No longer are they looking to march, they're looking to worship. And it's amazing how that applies to us because the Israelites, they looked back. Being circumcised was looking back being circumcised or celebrating the passover was looking back on what god has had done the covenant that god had made with abraham and they were looking back on circumcision and the passover because those two things looked forward to what christ was going to do when he died on the cross it looked forward to the the price that would be paid when christ died on the cross for each and every one of us in this room here this morning that when christ died on the cross that our sins would be paid for with his blood that just just like circumcision was bloody just like the passover was bloody it's because it was looking forward to the law the prescriptions that would be upheld that, that the penalty for not upholding it would be paid for not by us but by christ hebrews nine twenty two it says the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. You guys, we, we look at circumcision, we look at the Passover, and yes, we don't celebrate it today. But there's a reason for that. Is because our prescription has changed. Our prescription, just just like the terminology for prescription has changed. Prescription back back when it first first came into, into use applied to the law and adherence to the law and laws that were passed down. But now we look at it as what a doctor prescribes for an illness. It is the cure for an illness. The actual definition is an instruction written by a medical practitioner that authorizes a patient to be provided a medicine or treatment. Sin is the disease, Christ is the cure. We live in a world that's riddled with diseases, no cure. I remember reading an article not too long ago that talked about about this great cure-all, that someday science would find this great cure-all for every disease. It didn't matter what you were afflicted with. You could go in, and you could get this prescription, and it would cure you. And imagine if medical science found this cure-all, and you came down with cancer, and you went into the doctor, and the doctor says, this will cure you. And you said, I want chemotherapy. It worked in the past. My, 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 my grandpa had chemotherapy and it worked for him. And the doctor says, no, no, no. We've, we've got this cure for you now. No, I want that. Christ is the cure. And so we no longer have to look back on all these prescriptions. It's no longer up to us to uphold them all because Christ upheld them all. Christ upheld them all and he paid the price for all sin. For all sin. And we simply have to look to to the prescription. That doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want to do. That doesn't mean that we just let sin run rampant in our life. Because just like a child, as they grow up, yeah, they don't have to follow those rules and those regulations they did when they were children. But they still have those values. They still look back on those things as good. They know what is good, and they follow them because they know it is good in the light of who they are. And that is why we as followers of Christ... We follow the prescription of Christ and put him at the forefront. We transform our mind, not by focusing on what the world values, but on what Christ has called us to be, how Christ views us, what Christ paid for when he died on the cross. Paul, Paul says this in Romans 2, 28 through 29, because in Paul's day, they were still struggling. There were still some, some Judaizers who said, yes, Christ, but also circumcision. Yes, you can follow Christ, but you still have to follow all these little these little things of the law. And Paul makes it very clear that the same, the same mindset that the Israelites had on the plains of, of Gilgal is the same mindset that we have now when we follow Christ. Because it comes down to this. This is Romans 2, 28 and 29. It says a person is not a Jew, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward or physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. See, we don't, we don't have to look back at our works. We don't have to think that if if we're circumcised, if we celebrate Passover, if we do all this great stuff, then God has to accept us. That was in the Israelites' mindset. That's not what God wanted the Israelites to understand. God wanted the Israelites on the plains of Gilgal before they marched into Jericho, they were starting to look too heavily on what they were capable of. And God at this point, the, the Israelites at this point, they didn't know how the battle of Jericho was going to be waged. They didn't know that the, the, the greatest citadel in the area would be taken down in the easiest of ways because God was going to do it. But God knew that the Israelites, they just needed to look to him, not with their actions, but with their heart. That is how we are transformed. That is how we renew our mind is we lean so heavily on Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Our thoughts are in Christ. Our actions are in Christ. Everything that we are proclaims Christ's goodness and proclaims who we are because of him. Christ is the cure-all. Christ is the foundation of our life. And so when we come to those moments and we say, why not now? God, why not now? Look, this, this is coming up. I need this. I want this. It's not a bad thing. Why can't this happen for me now? Do you know what Christ told his followers in Matthew 6? This is Matthew six thirty-one and 33 says, So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall, shall we wear? Don't look forward to what's coming. Instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well whatever problem you're facing, financially, relationally, physically, Christ is the answer. We simply have to look back on what he did for us when he died on the cross. We simply have to look back on the grace that was so perfectly displayed, that the love that was so perfectly displayed when he died on the cross, and rest assured that if God would do that for us, you better believe he's going to take care of us. Christ didn't come down and pay that price. He didn't come down and die for us so that we could be good people. Christ came down and died for us so that we could be changed people, so that we could be where there was once sin is now perfection. Christ became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. The Israelites, they were circumcised. They seeked after God, not so that they could earn his favor, but because they just needed to rest fully in who he is they needed to rest fully in what he's capable of, that no matter what's in front of them, they can rest assured. That's the same calling that we have on our life today, is that no matter what you're facing, no matter your desire, look to Christ. Focus on Christ first. Put Christ at the forefront of your mind. The Israelites, they were going out of the desert into the promised land, into something so much better. More often than not, the why not now is because God's got to do something in our lives. God's got God's to gotta get our focus off of ourselves and off of our, our world and our circumstance and onto him because he's got something better than we are even ready for. And so when we want to cry out and say why not now, Now we can rest assured that God's got everything covered. God is completely in control so if you're in here this morning, and that's your life right now, why not now? I don't understand. I don't get it. This is too difficult. This is too painful. Why would God put me through this? Look at what Christ went through when he died on the cross. Why would God put Christ through that? Because he loves you. We can cheer for that. We should celebrate that. That should be at the forefront of our mind in everything that we do rather than asking why not now, the better question to ask is why would Christ die for me? And when we look at that and truly look at that, you can't help but be overwhelmed by the love of God, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the hope that we have, by the joy that we have, that we don't have to worry about anything because Christ paid for everything. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you this morning, Lord. We just we just want to seek you out in everything we do, Father. Lord, I pray for those people who are in here this morning who are just going through these painful moments, going through these these times in their life that don't make sense, that they don't know why they have to hurt the way they're hurting, why they have to suffer the way they're hurting. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak into their lives this morning and would just, just fill their heart with joy father that they would stop worrying about what is coming and lord they would look back on what you did when you died on the cross father that we would just be transformed by the renewing of our mind that our thoughts would not immediately go to the problem but to the solution father that our our default would be to look to you for everything and maybe we don't get it right when we want it father but that's okay because your son still died on the cross and we still have that grace extended to us we still have that perfection that is only attainable by the price that your son paid father god i pray for anybody in here this morning that is hurting lord that you would just just in a very real and a very tangible way that you would just give them peace Lord, that they would seek you out. They would seek out your prescription. They would seek out your son. They would dive into your word. They would pray even more fervently, Father. And that by doing that, Lord, you would meet them where they're at. And that they they would just be overwhelmed by your goodness and your grace and your love, Father. And Lord, I pray that we as a church, we could be a church that proclaims your goodness, that proclaims your good and your perfect will, Father. That we could be a church that goes and tells the world, about who you are and what you've done for us and how much you love us and how undeserving we are and how we don't even have to earn it, we just have to accept it, Father. Lord, I thank you for your word that we can we can read about people that lived 3,000 years ago and Lord, it can speak truth into our lives, it can bring hope to us in this moment, Father. And Lord, I just pray that we would just feast on your word. We would feast on your goodness, and we would just seek you out in everything and know that you are the answer. You are the solution for everything, and we don't have to ask why not now, because you've already got the answer. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.